Hello, everyone. Happy Monday. Thanks for tuning in. Talk Bookish to Me is the podcast where readers gather to talk about books, share recommendations, and chase that five-star feeling. I'm your host, Gwen, and today I'm joined by Sarah. We're here for the first book discussion of 2022. I hope you're ready for this. The Night Shift by Alex Finley is a thriller about a pair of small-town murders 15 years apart and the ties that bind them. We're going in-depth with our discussion, so if you've read it and you want to hear what we thought, or you just want to know if we think you should pick it up, that's what we're here to share. Hello, hello. My name is Sarah, otherwise known as Sarah Shelves on YouTube, and Sarah's underscore shelves with an extra S at the end of shelves. Every other variation was taken on Instagram. I'm also on Twitter, but I'm never really active on there, so your best bet for finding me is YouTube or Instagram. I am also one of the co-hosts for the Sugar and Spice Book Club, which is run by me along with two other booktubers, Manda from Ginger Snapped Reads and Lachlan from Locks Library. We have a book that we pick every single month. Sometimes it's voted on, sometimes we just pick new releases. It's going to be a little different from here on out because of the rebranding that was just happening with the book club. But we have one book each month and a live show towards the end of the month with one other co-host that we pick for that month. So I will have links to your social media in the notes of the t- today's show. I will also have a link to the Instagram for the Sugar and Spice Book Club. They just announced like the next three months picks and I'm super excited. Maybe not so much the first one. I'd really have to look at the synopsis of that one. The cover is interesting, but the next two picks are super interesting. So there is a super special reading vlog of The Night Shift that was made available to my patrons yesterday. They get all of the juicy behind the scenes stuff, bonus episodes, movie nights, milestone pins, voting power more for $5 a month. The next book discussion here on Talk Bookish to Me will be the new Christina Lauren book, Something Wilder which was also a Sugar and Spice Book Club pick. Um, This was voted on by my patrons, and that discussion here on the podcast is scheduled for June 13th. So start making plans to get your copy and read with me. The beginning, as always, will be spoiler-free for those that wanted to check in and hear our brief thoughts. Maybe just get a taste if this is something you're even interested in picking up and reading. We'll let you know before we hop into spoilers. So The Night Shift by Alex Finlay was published March 1st of this year, so very much a new release. At a blockbuster video, four teenage girls working the night shift are attacked. Only one survives. Police quickly identify a suspect who flees and is never seen again. Fifteen years later, in the same town, four teenage employees working late at an ice cream store are attacked, and again, only one makes it out alive. In the aftermath, three lives intersect, the survivor of the blockbuster massacre who's forced to relive her tragedy, the brother of the original suspect who's convinced the police have it wrong, and the FBI agent who's determined to solve both cases. On a collision course towards the truth, All three lives will forever be changed and not everyone will make it out alive. 
The author Alex Finley is actually the pseudonym of an author who lives in Washington, D.C. His 2021 breakout thriller, Every Last Fear, was an Indie Next picked, a Library Read selection, an Amazon Editor's Best Thriller, as well as a CNN, Newsweek, E!, BuzzFeed, Business Week, Goodreads, Parade, Pop Sugar, and Reader's Digest, Best or Most Anticipated Thriller of the Year. Alex's work has been translated into more than a dozen languages and has been optioned for film and television. Now, the first thing I want to do, each book that I read for the podcast, I choose a signature cocktail to pair with the book, whether it's like the ingredients that I'm going for, the flavors, or just the look of the cocktail. I think it's a super fun thing to do. My patrons love it. I actually share um, printable recipe cards with them that I create and share that with them so that they could like print them out and have like all these little recipe cards of all the signature cocktails. So the signature cocktail for the night shift is the Halloween red and blue. It sort of looks like a layered bomb pop cocktail um, with slightly different ingredients, but I picked this purely for the aesthetics. <laughs> so make sure you check the show notes for the full recipe or you can find it on Instagram coming soon. All right, now let's get to the nitty gritty. <laughs> um, did you read Finlay's debut, Every Last Fear? And would you read anything new he publishes after reading The Night Shift? So I did not end up picking up Every Last Fear when it came out, even though I remember there being a lot of buzz about it, specifically on Bookstagram. If I'm 100% honest, one of the reasons that I didn't pick it up initially was because of the somewhat negative attention it was gaining due to this unfounded rumor. I don't even know how it started, but I'm definitely not going to further this narrative. Therefore, I'm not really going to say it straight out, but you can do your own research if you already if you don't know what I'm talking about. Regardless, it just wasn't calling my name. I wasn't drawn to it. My TBR is already massive enough, so sadly, just didn't make the cut. Makes sense. <laughs> As far as reading anything he publishes in the future, I think I'm going to pass. Fair, fair. <laughs> um, while The Night Shift was rich in its characters, it fell flat for me in intrigue. So the next book he publishes better have a really great synopsis and have that synopsis knock my socks off for me to be compelled to pick it up. So I don't want to say that I'm going to write him off completely, but I probably won't look at it first. I understand that. So I did all I did read Every Last Fear last year. And honestly, it was just pretty average. Um, luckily, <laughs> I started writing reviews for every single book that I read last year. Um, I got sent an art copy of this. And since I read it last year, I had a review for it. So I can look back at that review. And it jogs my memory about like what I liked and what I didn't and what it was about, you know, other than just what the synopsis says. Um, and I can remember some of the main points from that, but definitely not the finer details. Um, so average, you know, as far as anything new, I definitely think that I will be keeping my eye on him because this is only his second book. You know what I'm saying? I think that it was like gripping, well-paced and plotted um, with characters whose intertwining fates and secrets kept me hooked um, from the book's first pages to the last. Um, will I remember it in a year though? 
probably not. But while I was reading it, it was fun and entertaining. And sometimes that's all I can ask for with a thriller of this caliber. So who would you recommend The Night Shift to? I would recommend The Night Shift to people who enjoy thrillers with alternating timelines, thrillers that have a lot of police jargon and legal talk. Um, I would specifically recommend Night Shift to those who like The One by John Mars. There are definitely similarities between the two in the multiple perspective avenue and also just the plot twist slash cliffhanger at the end of each chapter thing that they both got going on. And the chapters in this book are also really short, just like in The One by John Mars. It's so interesting because I didn't, it wasn't until we started talking about this when you said that it has those cliffhangers that I was like, it did? And then when you gave specific examples, I was like, wow, it really did. (laughs) So I didn't pick up on that, but maybe that was another thing that really had me continuing to read it but the quotes that you're gonna quote later on I was just like wow that was really cheesy so I'm glad that I was just in it for the entertainment (laughs) anyway um (laughs) I think this is a great thriller for beginners I think if you're new to the genre you want something fun and quick to get through um if you're looking for something lighter to read with like no or little dark themes or topics other than like death and killing but if you're gonna go read a thriller it pretty much always has death and killing in it so just throwing that out there but besides those I think there was nothing that really stood out as like oh my gosh you know content warnings or trigger warnings per se um and I honestly think that if you're a fan of Riley Sager thrillers you'll probably like this one specifically survive the night um or even final girls I think you might like this one as well because it it took me until the end of the novel I was like oh it kind of had the final girl trope in it so I think I would also recommend this book to anyone who liked the couple next door by Sherry Lapina now if you know me you probably know that the couple next door happens to be one of my least favorite books of all time however I would still recommend you pick that one up if you enjoyed this one While The Couple Next Door is a domestic thriller and this one is most definitely not, they both focus heavily on police slash FBI work and they both have somewhat lower stakes involved in the plot. I mean, that sounds kind of harsh being that in this book we are following a murder investigation and in The Couple Next Door we are following a child kidnapping, but in comparison with a lot of other thrillers, both of these are pretty light. Now let's get into the characters. And when I say there were a lot, there are a lot of characters, but I don't think that a lot of them were important. So we have a lot to unpack here. But were there any characters that you specifically liked or disliked? So like you said, there's definitely a ton of characters in this book. Most of them are filler characters. So there are a lot of characters that we either couldn't or shouldn't have opinions on. With that being said, my favorite character definitely was Ella. One of my cats is named Ella, which is maybe what swayed me a little bit. (laughs) But I think I just liked her from the beginning of the book because I didn't trust her. And I kind of like, she was intriguing to me. And maybe that's a weird reason to like a character, but... I mean, that's just how my brain works. 
Um, Ella is the sole survivor of the blockbuster slayings that took place in the prologue of the novel and is now working as a therapist in order to unlock the secrets of the mind and help other victims and maybe even herself. My least favorite character was definitely Rusty Whitaker, the father of Vince and Chris Whitaker. Obviously, you're not supposed to root for him, and he's an abuser, he's shady, and he's a piece of crap. Another character I didn't necessarily dislike, just her overall presence annoyed me, was Sarah Keller, aka Agent Keller, aka Agent Badass. (laughs) (laughs) as she was called multiple times in the book. I feel like her being pregnant didn't need to be focused on as heavily as it was. I think she was super smart and great at her profession, but knowing that this book was written by a man and then having her pregnancy struggles thrown in there randomly left and right left a weird taste in my mouth. I guess it kind of lent itself to the I'm a woman and I can do anything a man can do while also being eight months pregnant (laughs) narrative, but I felt like it was gone about poorly. That is such a good point. Um, Yeah, I actually have a favorite character, Atticus. I mean, (laughs) we'll get more into him later in the episode as well, but he is the young detective at the Union County Prosecutor's Office who is as close to an expert on the blockbuster Um, file that they have. Um, He works alongside Keller to figure out the crimes and how they could be connected. He's Indian American and was named after Atticus Finch from To Kill a Mockingbird. He obviously makes a very big impression on Keller too, which I'll touch on later in the episode. Of course, like you, my least favorite character was Rusty. Obviously, you're not supposed to like him, but whenever I found out anything new about him, I just kept disliking him more and more and more as the story story went on. Um, Like you said, he's the father of Vince and Chris, and he was abusive. He was into illegal things. Now, I do have some thoughts about the characters in general. (laughs) While there were a lot of characters in the books, there were only three perspectives. So throughout the story, you get Ella, the final girl from the box, blockbuster slaying Keller the junior FBI agent and Chris the brother of a fugitive accused of the blockbuster crime when I was filming my reading vlog for my patrons I showed them how I was annotating my copy of the book to prepare for today's discussion one of my methods was to circle the names of all the characters as they popped up And then underline any key details or facts that would help me remember who they were in like a few words or like some key phrases. I had no idea starting it that there were going to be so many characters, you know, to kind of keep track of. But I just did that because when I do books for book discussions, I like to keep track of my thoughts a little bit better. I did that also in this book. I annotated it and I underlined when a new character was introduced and then any character descriptions. And I think maybe, I don't know if that's like what made it pop out is, oh my gosh, there's so many characters in this or like what, but I had to circle a lot of names. (laughs) There were five different characters introduced in a three page prologue. That's too many. (laughs) Chapter one, another three pages into the book and you're getting two or three more characters added. So you've read six pages of the book and you already have eight characters. 
okay? Eight characters. <laughs> um, and this just goes on and on like this. It's just it, every time I turned the page, it was like, oh, here's another character. Oh, here's another character. And who is this? So eventually, I don't know what time it stopped in the book, but the list is complete and there were no, <laughs> there were no new characters added. And it was just really overwhelming. You know, I was just overwhelmed. So as I said, Ella is the final girl from the blockbuster slangs. But in the present timeline, the 15 years later timeline, she is a 30 year old therapist who, in my opinion, did not read maturely, especially when she started hanging out with Jessie, who is the final girl from the ice cream slangs. Jessie was just a teenager and Ella and her were hanging out like they were friends. And more than like her being like a mentor or a therapist, even though she mentioned like, oh, she's a foster child and I'm a therapist. Like, no, you were acting like you were like her friend and y'all were kicking it. Like, I, I don't know. I just found that super odd. I can't say with certainty that I would not have behaved if I was Ella in that situation. I would not have behaved the same way that she did. Um, Sarah Keller, the junior FBI agent, was a complete badass, like Sarah said, and they made sure that they pointed it out to you. She trusted her gut and she was actually trying to figure out like these two cases, even though she was only familiar with the ice cream sling, since that was like the current, you know, investigation that we were doing. And she was working with Atticus, like trying to find out about the blockbuster um, incident. And like she was trying to piece together clues and see how they could be related. But what I don't understand is why she had to be pregnant in the first place. Like, like you said, eight months pregnant at that. Like, why did she have to be pregnant? Why? I, I, I literally, I could not imagine as an author that I'm writing this FBI agent. I'm like, you know what? Especially, a ma you know, a male author, like you said, saying, hmm, let's make her pregnant too. Like, what? Why? Like, it, it literally made no sense. As far as Chris is concerned, um, he, I didn't pay attention to him as much and he didn't play as big of a role in the story as Ella and Keller. Um, I actually counted. I sat here one day and I went through and I counted all of the POV shifts for them. Ella had 21. So she, her POV was switched to 21 times. Keller had 20 and Chris only had 14. But of those, his POV didn't really start picking up until the 50% mark. So for 50%, he was only in there like maybe once or twice, maybe three times. And it wasn't until towards the end that we really started getting more from him. Um, Ella easily could have been the main character and the entire story could have been told solely through her POV. But I'm happy that it wasn't because it was fun to see how the investigation was playing out and like stuff like that. All right. So that's enough about the characters for now, but I'm definitely going to talk about it some more when we get to the writing portion. But first, let's talk about the setting. I always think it's interesting. I ask this every single book discussion. What did you think about the setting? Do you think it was important? And almost always, the, I don't know if it's just the books that I'm picking out, but it's like, no, the setting did not matter. So in this case, it was set in Linden, New Jersey. What did you think about that? I had never heard of Linden, New Jersey prior to picking this book up. I'm not the best with geography anyways, so I would be none the wiser if it was a real place or not. I guess I just kind of pictured it set in a town like mine with kind of the atmosphere of Coney Island, which they did name drop a couple of times. Um, I've never been to Coney Island, but I've seen pictures. Um, I also have not heard of Linden, New Jersey. 
um, before reading the story and I had no idea it was a real place either. <laughs> so I'm unsure if the author based it on the real location or not, but shout out to Linden, New Jersey <laughs> listeners. It's actually a part of the New York metropolitan area. It's 13 miles southwest of Manhattan and only 40 minutes from New York City. All right, so next I wanted to jump into the one question that was submitted. I like to ask you guys on Instagram if you have any questions that you want us to answer. And Lena Bookshelf asked, did the 90s Y2K nostalgia live up to your expectations? We have some thoughts. And I think a lot of you guys were wondering this because it was like right there in the synopsis. What did you think, Sarah? Absolutely not. I expected to go into the book fully immersed in Y2K culture, having to get out my phone every couple of minutes to look up terms I was unfamiliar with or, you know, unknown 90s pop culture references I had no idea about. It was a letdown in that department for sure. The only thing I had to look up was Zema or Zima? Zima, yeah. Zima, which was referenced on page 128 when we flash back to December of 1999. If you also don't know what Zima is, I'm here to enlighten you. Zima is a clear, lightly carbonated alcoholic beverage which was distributed and made by the Coors Brewing Company. It was launched in 1993 and discontinued in 2008 with a couple of limited releases here and there. That's awesome. We're dropping all the fun facts in today's episode. The short answer to your question, Lena, is no. <laughs> I definitely thought it would have given off more Y2K, even early 2000s vibes. But the fact is, is that the majority, I'm gonna say 98% of the novel is set 15 years after an attack that happened on New Year's Eve in 1999. The short prologue, like I said, three pages long, was set on New Year's Eve in 1999. Chapter 27, set on December 5th, 1999, was four pages long. And then chapter 70, another three pages long that was set on New Year's Eve, um, 1999. Those are the only times... <laughs> that you're in the 90s in this novel. So what was that, seven, eight, 10 pages? 10 pages of like a 300 and something page book that you're in the 90s. Everything else is set in 2015 other than the epilogue, which is set one year later than the entire novel, which takes place. Um, so the novel takes place over three days in April 2015. And that means around April 2016 was the epilogue. All right, listeners. That's about it. <laughs> if you haven't read the book or you haven't finished the book yet, this is a time where we'd like to encourage you to close out today's episode and come back and listen when you've completed the book because we're gonna be jumping into spoilers. But if you're not interested in reading or you're just along for the journey, go ahead, keep listening. We definitely have more to say. Um, why don't you start with the plot and the pacing, Sarah? Okay, so... Hang in there with me for a second here as I try to walk you through my thoughts of the plot in as few words as possible. Did this book have a strong starting plot? Yes. Was the plot of the book consistent throughout? No. Were the subplots introduced throughout important? Not really. I felt like Finlay really made us jump from subplot to subplot with no warning and also with no prior yearning to know answers to questions that were never posed in the first place. 
For example, the subplot of finding out what happened to Chris and Vince's mother. We were told early on that she just up and left one day with no warning or explanation, and that was that. No further questions asked. But then we find out that, surprise, she was actually murdered and her body had been rotting away inside a steel drum that was kept inside of one of Randy's storage units for upwards of 20 years. Oh, and also, Randy isn't only making bank off of his counterfeit cigarette business. Which, how funny was that? That was so random to me. It was so (laughs) random. So random. He was also being paid off by none other than Ella's father, Mr. Monroe. I couldn't find his first name anywhere, so I don't even know if he has one. Yeah. (laughs) To keep quiet about murdering Vince Whitaker. In short, the plot was just a little all over the place. In terms of the pacing... As I kind of stated earlier, I thought the shifting narratives and the short chapters really lent itself to make you interested in riding this train all the way to its destination, so to speak. However, in my personal opinion, the little cliffhangers at the end of each chapter just got really annoying to me after a while, even becoming very cheesy. Just a couple examples. At the end of chapter 29, page 141, it says... Maybe this someone knew what the killer had said to Ella Monroe. Or maybe there's more to it. Dun, dun, or, dun. <laughs> yeah, insert dramatic music here. Or at the end of chapter 31, page 148, quote, What happened at her last school? What happened to her family? At the same time, she fears what she'll learn. <laughs> insert more dramatic music here. <laughs> insert, yes. Exactly. And that was like, I just didn't pick up when I was reading it. As far as the plot for me, I liked the investigation playing out over the course of three days. That seems like a believable amount of time for this crime to have been solved, especially since it was in conjunction with the blockbuster crime and the FBI were involved, not just like the local police. It certainly explains the who, what, where, and why, whodunit aspects, which I appreciate because sometimes answers are spread throughout a book and you have to like track the answers like as you're reading. Now, I know this isn't everybody's like preference, but I prefer the Scooby-Doo method (laughs) where the whole book leads up to like the final reveal and then they yank the mask off of the killer at the end, you know, and then it's all laid out. That pacing was perfect for me. I loved the short chapters. Plus, I was intrigued and invested in all three of the perspectives. Like I said, Did Keller have to be pregnant? No, but like I still enjoyed her perspective probably because that was when I got to read about Atticus as well. Um, I will say that I was let down that the marketing focused on the Y2K timeline and then the timeline and the vibes of the early 2000s was like maybe a total of like six pages, the prologue and another chapter that's about three pages. It just definitely could have like beefed up that timeline more Onto the writing. I think this is a really, this is where I'm really going to get into it, guys. So what do you have to say about just like the writing in general, Sarah? The writing style was extremely straightforward and in my opinion, easily accessible for anyone and everyone. The only real issue I had with the writing was the fact that we had these dual perspectives, dual POVs, 
But why weren't they told in first person? I'm not not really sure if that's nitpicky of me to criticize this book for that, but it just really bothered me while I was reading. So I agree with you. I didn't think it was flowery or complicated. It was just like pure entertainment. Um, Like I mentioned, it's great for beginners. I do want to touch on a few things, though, that, and it was mainly naming all of the characters. (laughs) I mentioned this briefly before, but I feel like I could go on and on about this topic. So Finley made a decision to name all of the characters, important people and side characters alike, (laughs) filler people as Sarah called them, which is a great, I mean, that's exactly what they were, but he still decided to give them a name. This was annoying because in my reading, giving a character a name and identifying features signals to me that they're important. I'm not a writer. I've never taken any writing classes or anything of the sort, but as a reader for many, many years, naming something, whether it be a person, place, or thing is important. Um, So when an author decides to name literally every single one of their characters, No matter their significance to the story, it's frustrating, especially in a mystery thriller where you might be trying to figure out the whodunit on your own. Let me give you an example. In the prologue, four characters are named, the store manager, the four young employees. Why did all of these people have to be given a name? Why couldn't it just been the manager instead of actually saying that the manager's name was Steve and telling you that he was the manager? Okay, Keller you know, Sarah Keller, the FBI agent, she is married and we're given her husband's name, Bob. Why not just say Keller's husband? I don't understand. You especially don't need to write Bob, Keller's husband, every time you write about him. So I just don't think that these little facts are that important. And since we're meeting important and unimportant characters, why not just use my husband, her husband, or my boss? Her boss, for example. Like, does that make sense? Yeah, I think Finlay just really tried to build this huge cast of characters to confuse us and to mislead us. And the other thing I wanted to touch on was the YouTube videos in here. Were they a fun addition? Not really. But did they make me wonder if the vlogger was in fact Vince? It wasn't, by the way. <laughs> um, so I, I, it did definitely make me think that like it was him. But I was like, how was he out in the open like this? I don't know. It had me definitely, of course, that was the purpose of them. Because they were leading you to think that it was. Chapter 62 and 63 is where Ella and Chris finally track down the notorious vlogger, Mr. Nirvana. And they confront him. <laughs> And all he says is, sorry, bro, I don't know who you're looking for, but I'm in the middle of filming. I just, I was like, really? Okay, so who is this guy? Then in relation to the YouTube videos, you get one last video at the very end, except for this time, it's the night shift travel vlog. And I just thought that was so cheesy. I just... I. I agree. I thought it was super cheesy. And also, they just kept dropping hints throughout the entire book of Nirvana. It's like something Vince always said. What are the odds that Mr. Nirvana is a vlogger? And it just, it was just to throw us off, I know. And Nirvana's not an, 
an indie band that nobody knows about. Yeah. But either way, it was kind of annoying. Yeah, it was. And it just... And then uh, one of the things that they said, one, I think it was like Chris who was saying it, is that this Mr. Nirvana vlogger was kind... He never showed his face in his videos and they made a point of like always talking about that. And then they were saying that he is challenging his viewers to find him where he is in the world and stuff. And I'm like, well, Ella and Chris rolled up on you. What do they get for finding you? And not only do they not get anything, I mean, he literally only says that one cheesy line guess what guys this character not given a name i don't know and it was only there was like three or four videos and then that one at the end it was so dumb i don't even know why it was in there i know it was to throw us off but i think he could have been creative and come up with something else so that's funny that you mentioned that he's the only character that does not have a name <laughs> That's so funny. I didn't even realize that. They never, I like, even after I read it, I even like went back and looked. I was like, did they? And I just like missed it. I was like, no, they did not give this guy a name. His name is just not Vince. That's his name. <laughs> yeah, Mr. Nirvana. Get it right, Sarah? <laughs> did you have any like favorite quotes or passages that stood out to you? Yes, I did. At the top of page 68 is a quote I think everyone should live their life by. And it is, quote, sometimes it's better to ask for forgiveness than permission. And Keller is saying this to Atticus when they're going to the suspected janitor's house to go investigate. And a really sad passage slash quote that I want to point out can be found at the top of page 173. Here, Chris is seeing Hal Kowalski for the first time since he had been he had been the one to take him to his foster home. And Chris remembers how mad about it he had been at the time, saying, quote, Chris had been angry about it. Funny how that works. Abused, neglected, and upset about being removed. His anger slowly faded under the tender care of Miss May, under the strength of Clint, going to bed without worry of being woken by a fist. Oh, that's so powerful. It's so sad. Another really sad passage, also involving Chris. I really feel for Chris, if you couldn't tell. This is when he is going to dinner at his adoptive parents' house, and he sees his law school graduation photo on the fridge, and he remembers this day as the day he had finally decided to let his mom go. He'd been so angry with her. She hadn't only left without saying goodbye. She'd left Chris and Vince with Rusty. She, of all people, understood what that meant for them. Rusty said she'd run off with a no-good bastard who hung out at the bar, that if they ever spoke of her again, it would be their last words, that she was a whore and they were better off without her. She'd abandoned them. Still, every birthday, Chris would check the mail for a card. On his high school, then college graduation days, he'd stare out into the stands, searching, but nothing. He fantasized that Mom and Vince had reunited, that they'd appear when things were safe, but part of him always knew the truth. She'd escaped the prison known as Rusty Whitaker, and never looked back. Thus, on that seemingly perfect day, with his law school diploma tucked under his arm, Clint and Miss May beaming with pride, he'd let Mary Whitaker go forever. Oh my gosh. And knowing his dad lied. Liar! Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, it just keeps coming for Chris, that's for sure. He got, he definitely got a lot of closure in the end, but it wasn't necessarily good closure. And then I will end off on a funny quote because nice. those were both those were both pretty heavy pretty sad yeah um at the top of page 127 this one's pretty self-explanatory it says 
Leave her alone, Cans. Mandy calls her Cans because of Candy's large breasts, which the boys are obsessed with. <laughs> I love that one. That's a good one. Oh, those were great. Um, so starting on page 35, about halfway down the page, Atticus is briefing Keller on the details of the blockbuster case and why Vince was their main suspect. And I actually read this exact passage out in my reading vlog that I shared with my patrons. And even though there's like a definitive clue right there on page 35 in this passage, I still didn't guess the killer. <laughs> um, okay. She listens as Atticus gives her the basics. Vince Whitaker was arrested the night of the crime after he'd been seen at the blockbuster earlier that night. His car later spotted in the lot at closing. Authorities also matched a print on the break room door to his, fing to his index finger. It was thinned but under immense pressure. Hal's predecessor ordered the arrest. A public defender got Whitaker sprung for insufficient probable cause and Whitaker disappeared. A day later, in Whitaker's locker at the high school, they found the murder weapon, an ordinary chef's knife taken from the blockbuster break room. My favorite line of the entire novel, though, <laughs> was on page 115. Okay, let me set the scene. So Chris, in the current timeline, he's actually a public defender now, which I think that's really cool about Ella, that she had this horrible thing happen to her. She, you know, was is a therapist now. And then Chris, this horrible situation happened to him. The foster parents, his brother ran away, his dad's a jerk, and now he's a public defender. So I think that's just really cool. But anyway, so he's a public defender now, and he's meeting with one of his clients, Brenda, a 20-year-old in jail for selling drugs. He's noticing, like, how thin she is, and he asks if she's hungry. Um, and she says, yeah. And she says a cherry Coke and chips would be nice. And even though he has made it like a rule as a public defender to never buy vending machine snacks for his client, he makes an exception. He grabs her a cherry Coke and some Doritos and continues their meeting. She's drinking and eating and all of that. And um, basically he's there to kind of like talk her through like her options. And he's recommending that she take a plea because they have her dead to rights on possession. And at the very end of their conversation, he asks her, like, just imagine you're Brenda, right? And your public defender says, hey, do you have any more questions? Like he's just in there asking about this plea deal and telling you, like, you're in jail. You're going to jail, okay? <laughs> and he says, and you're like, any other questions? And she says, and she says, if I suck your dick, will you get me another cherry Coke? I lost it. I lost. Is she serious right now? Is this bitch serious right now? If I suck your dick, can I get another cherry Coke? It's funny how that's your most memorable part of that chapter. Because I almost wanted to point out a really sad part of that chapter, but you had already... <laughs> You know, you already wanted to talk about that, so I didn't, and I just chose another sad passage. Oh, my god! But gosh. it's just funny to me that that was what stood out. That was the, that was my takeaway of my sucker dick. Can I get another cherry Coke? Another funny quote was near the end. Keller um, gets into the Stedman residence, and she's tracking him through the house, and, quote, then something terrifying happens. Some silence of the lambs level shit. The lights go out. The place is pitch black. I love the Silence of the Lambs. So when it said that, I was like, I know exactly what she's talking about. It's about to get creepy up in here. Yeah, I think those were some great quotes. I, I like how I was like funny, sucker dick for a cherry Coke. And you're all like pulling on the heartstrings with like, my mom and dad were terrible. And now I have these awesome foster parents. We definitely noticed different things. 
Yeah, definitely. So which plot twists did you find the most shocking? Did you see any coming? Um, I guess the first thing I should ask is, did you guess who the killer was? Yes, 100% I did. I knew it from the very beginning. I mean, I had my my preconceived notions of Mr. Stedman just right off the bat. And I just knew that he was suspicious. You know, he was the only one who had access to the school lockers. Which I totally did not think about, (laughs) obviously. He was the only one who was specifically named in both timelines for being a worker in the school. See, that's another thing they did. He used to be a teacher and now he's a principal at the school. Dang it, Sarah. Okay, I'm just saying if I ever get in some shit, I'm calling you a girl. (laughs) And also he had the easiest access to the girls and would know where they worked and all of that. Oh my gosh. I feel like such an idiot, you guys. (laughs) Sarah's over here solving crimes. (laughs) so as i said that blatant clue i completely missed it (laughs) as mr sedman was revealed as the killer i was like oh my god no ella her parents are rich which made me question why she was working at this blockbuster video luckily it was answered like a few like a chapter or two later and i was like okay that makes sense but i was like why is this rich girl working on a blockbuster video? Um, also, when Jesse originally said that she went to the ice cream store to use the bathroom, but then later she confessed to Ella that she lied and that she actually went to go confront Madison because she and her friends were talking shit about her and Jesse wanted them to stop. I was like, oh, damn, did this girl kill them? But then I was like, it doesn't make sense to be, you know, the other timeline, the blockbuster timeline. And then Katie McKenzie, one of the victims from the blockbuster crime, was being, was like pregnant. At the time in the story, they assumed that she had like taken care of it before the blockbuster thing. And I was just like, dang, that's sad. And then Jesse was arrested and she knew Chris's real identity. I was like, who is this little detective over here? (laughs) I was like, how does she know that? Um... And then when they were investigating Rusty and like his whole cigarette scam thing, which again, so freaking random. And they found that barrel with the decomposed body and it turned out to be Vince and Chris's mom. I mean, like you said, she'd been missing for 20 years. There was no questions asked. They just said that like, yeah, she ran away and they gave you a reason like the, you know, Rusty said like, oh, she ran away with whatever guy and you know, whatever. And then she's found in the steel drum in a storage unit near a sewage plant. I mean, I, w- I felt so bad. I was like, so even, you know, Vince died thinking that his mom ran away. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and Chris all this time. I mean, that was crazy. And then, of course, later on, we learned that, like, Jesse is Kate McKenzie's daughter. So she actually didn't have it taken care of, like, as we initially thought. So I thought that that was good. Um, and then the Nirvana um, vlogger not being Vince, that it was just some unnamed guy, which first I really did think it was going to be Vince. Even though it didn't make sense in my head, I was like, he, I was thinking the author's going to make this vlogger Vince. Not that that makes sense, but I was thinking that's what he was going to do. And then, like I said, him being unnamed, that was just like, of all the people you named in this book, you're not going to give us the name of the vlogger. Okay. Vince being buried in Ella's family's back garden that the dad 
killed and buried the body and then later he killed himself and then it was basically like the three devastated fathers of the blockbuster crime decided to take justice into their own hands after Vince was released because they didn't have enough evidence to hold him because he wasn't the killer um and then on page 287 when Ella goes to talk to Mr. Stedman and she immediately gets that panic feeling that's when I knew he was the killer chapter 70 we get um a chapter from Katie's perspective which is December 31st 1999 and we find out how Dale Stedman was involved and what set him off okay Let's be honest, Atticus dying sucked, you guys. My favorite character died. <laughs> um, when Keller was being carried away on a stretcher, she passed Atticus, who wasn't moving, Chris and Ella, who were also not moving. And I was just like, are they all like three dead? They never did say like Atticus died, but they he didn't pop up again and Chris and Ella did. Um, so that just makes me think he didn't make it. And then the final clue that Atticus didn't make it was that Keller finally at the end she, like she was eight months pregnant you guys so she popped out the twins and she named them michael atticus keller and sarah attica keller as an homage to the detective which i thought was so freaking wholesome but i was like really <laughs> is that the only reason he made her pregnant you know what i was saying like i was just about to say the exact same <laughs> thing probably just so you would have something to remember one of your favorite characters by well, you know, I guess, I guess it works, I guess. <laughs> also, going back to what you were saying about the the fathers all killing Vince, I thought mm -hmm. that was so sad when Ella's mom, Phyllis, confronted her about it and said, I need to be honest with you about what happened. It was very heart-wrenching having to find out the same time she was, Yeah. I personally did not find any of the plot twists that shocking, per se, except for the whole Jesse is Katie's daughter thing. And even then, I wouldn't really say I was shocked by it. I was more relieved by it that Jesse had a connection to the story. And that was mm -hmm. a pretty wholesome plot twist. I think I was much more shocked at some of the ominous plot developments that could have been twists that weren't. Um, I really wanted something to come out of Ella calling herself by one of the other blockbuster slaying victims when she slept around. I thought something bigger was going to be revealed with that, but nothing ever came of it. What was the ending like for you? Did you like it? Were you satisfied? The ending was a happy one, and I kind of didn't want it to be. I'm glad that Agent Keller got to live and also have her twins and that her husband to support her in her career. I just really hate that Atticus had to die, like you said, but it was a nice touch that they named their children after him. Yeah, it was definitely a nice, like, okay. And that's how I was saying, like, earlier, like, he obviously made an impression on her as well. I mean, to name your kids after this guy that you've only known for three days, like, that's pretty big, in my opinion. <laughs> I didn't even think about the fact that they only yeah. knew each other for three days. Yeah, it was only three days. So, Yeah. Um, I thought the author did a good job of wrapping everything up. The who done it and why done it were believable and all the clues and pieces of the puzzle slid into place for some people sooner, you know, than others, but we're not going to talk about that. I just don't know what to make of that final YouTube video of Ella and Chris delivering supplies to an orphanage along the Amazon river. Like that just, 
random. I mean, like what the heck does that have to do with anything that we just read? And I also wondered, does that mean that Ella and Chris are together now? I think like, does so. Does this bring them together and they're like dating? Probably. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Any final thoughts? I think we needed more shady characters. I feel like everyone's motives were fairly easy to guess from the get-go, or to me. And I just wanted more out of all the ominous things, like I said earlier. These things were dropped into our laps and then never picked up again. A quick example being the fact that on page 40, Ella's husband Brad is home when he was, quote, supposed to be out with fellow IT sales nerds for several days of PowerPoint presentations and watered-down drinks at an embassy suites in Atlantic City. Why wasn't he a suspect after you just spoon-fed us that otherwise unnecessary information? I don't get yeah. it. Yeah, exactly. Why was that even put in there? So, like, is he cheating on you or, like, what's going on? We didn't get anything else about that. So, good point. Um, for me personally, I think I covered everything. I talked about a lot of things. The two things that could have made it better for me were less names and more Y2K early 2000s chapters. So here's the deal. What's your rating? How did you enjoy the book overall? So I've been teetering between a two star and a three star. So I think I'll just settle right in the middle with a 2.5. While The Night Shift wasn't horrible, I was pretty meh about the whole thing while reading it. I may have even DNF'd it if I weren't reading it for this podcast. Overall, it just wasn't that memorable, and yeah, I just won't be remembering it a week from now. Yeah, I do agree that I think in like a couple months, definitely a year from now, I'm going to have to like go back and listen to this episode if I ever want to remember what this was about. Um, I ended up rating the book three stars because I did enjoy it while I was reading. Like I said, it was super entertaining. If you're looking for a fun, like quick thriller, 10 out of 10, do recommend for that reading experience. So that concludes our discussion of The Night Shift by Alex Finley. Thank you for reading and discussing this with me, Sarah. Thank you so much for having me on. It's been an honor to be able to sit down with you and do what we both love doing, which is talking about books. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at TalkBookishPodcast. Rate and review the podcast on Apple and Spotify. Also, the link for Patreon is in the show notes, along with the links for Sarah's social media and the signature cocktail recipe. Grab your Talk Bookish to Me custom stickers for $10 a sheet. All you have to do is message me for payment details. Until next time, happy reading. Reading.